Our scripture passage this morning is Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and Jesus was baptized. Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. Well, you know, there's a lot of confusion around um, a baptism. And so we so leaders think it's appropriate to just periodically go back through and what a better time when we have baptisms than to kind of explain it. And I'm hoping that you'll gain appreciation and satisfaction from what we're doing, particularly from this text in, in Matthew. This is Jesus' baptism. Now, you know, this is found in chapter 3, so obviously there's some things before that have been said in Matthew's gospel. And what we find before in chapters 1 and 2 is the birth narratives. This is the the story of how Jesus was born, right? So you have uh, you have that Jesus is the son of Abraham, Abraham, and the son of David. Now this is significant. Both of these men in the Old Testament received incredible promises. Abraham, the nations would be blessed, and and David, an eternal kingdom would be given to him, and a, a king given to his son, or a, a kingdom given to his son. And so you have that Jesus. This birth narrative shows that he's a child of promise. He's going to receive these promises of the Old Testament. But then right after that, you have that Jesus is conceived by the Spirit. He has no human father. And so now you learn he's not just the son of man, he's also the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the unique one bringing about this kingdom. And so you have this unique birth narrative that Jesus is incredible, different from every other human being, and yet human, and then, of course, if you go on to read the Gospel of Matthew, you see that he has an incredible ministry. But here at the baptism, it's the beginning of it all. It starts here. In fact, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, at the Jordan is where the New Testament begins. This is where it all begins. We're going to see in the baptism of Jesus so much about what we need to see about our own baptisms. So a couple of things are going to be revealed. First, uh, Jesus is going to be revealed as perfectly obedient and righteous. Jesus is going to be revealed as obedient and righteous. That's the first thing. The second thing is Jesus is going to be revealed as being empowered by the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit. And then Jesus is going to be confirmed by the Father as his Son. So those are the three things we're going to see. He's that he is uh, perfectly righteous, that he has been anointed by the Spirit, and that he will be confirmed by the father so let's look at his righteousness look at me back at 13 to 15 he says then jesus came from galilee to the jordan to john to be baptized by him john would have prevented him saying i need to be baptized by you and do you come to me but jesus answered him let it be so for now for this is for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness then he consented so let me set the scene so John is the forerunner, prophesied by Isaiah, by Malachi. He's the forerunner saying, people get ready, a king is coming, a kingdom is going to be established, a new kingdom, an eternal kingdom, a radical kingdom. And so he's calling the people to be prepared. And the way he prepares them is the way I prepare you. He preaches. He preaches repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
He preaches to be baptized. This is how a radical kingdom is coming, and there is a radical conversion that needs to take place to enter this kingdom. And listen, they were coming, it says, from Judea and from Jerusalem. That was 70 miles away. Now, they're walking. There's no mass transit. See, people were coming. They were walking days to prepare for this Messiah. And Jesus was among those who were coming to be baptized. Now, in your mind, you're thinking, well, why is Jesus going to be baptized? I mean, if it's repentance for the forgiveness of sin, he had no sin. So what's he repenting of? Why is he being baptized at all? And this is John's struggle. John says, I need to be baptized by you. I mean, John knew at this stage in the ministry that Jesus was mightier than him, that, that he was the Messiah. He says earlier in chapter 3, I'm not even worthy to carry his sandal. How about if someone says that to you? I'm not worthy to carry his shoe. John says, I baptize with water. He'll baptize by the Spirit of God. So, so the question is, why? Why is Jesus being baptized? We, we have to answer that question. It, it, it unveils huge things about Jesus. Well, we, we see that he says... Let it be so for now, for now. So, so we know that we're in a unique time of redemptive history, right? This isn't just any other time. This is a unique time where Jesus, the Messiah, has taken on flesh, come among us, and he's going to be baptized. Now, uh, the reason he's being baptized is, number one, it, it is affirming John's ministry. It is confirming that John is the forerunner that was prophesied. So John is he has been prophesied, and he is walking out his role. But secondly, it confirms John's message. It is a good message. It's a true message. He didn't get it wrong. So we do need to repent and be baptized. That's a true message. Uh, but then thirdly, notice what Jesus says specifically. He says, it is to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what does this mean? It's really incredible. Jesus says that we will fulfill all righteousness. The, the idea of righteousness is right doing. It's doing the will of God. Now, that phrase is used about half a dozen times in the Gospel of Matthew, to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill. It's speaking about fulfilling the Scriptures. I think Jesus, now there's a ton of literature written about this, uh, but simply put, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I'm going to walk in perfect obedience to God. I'm going to fulfill the Word of God. Now, Jesus is the second Adam. The first Adam was given the Word of God, and he failed. And Israel was given the word of God, and they were disobedient. Jesus is the second Adam, fulfilling the word of God. Jesus is the new Israel, fulfilling the word of God. What Jesus is doing is he's going to walk in perfect obedience and righteousness to the Father. But, but here's, the, here's, the, here's the thing that people miss, is that in Isaiah, it says uh, that the righteous will save many. Jesus is identifying with sinful humanity by being baptized. Jesus, though righteous, is going to identify with the unrighteous so that he can save us. He's showing, if, if you were in the crowd and you were aware of the Old Testament, you'd say, that's the suffering servant. That's the servant of Isaiah 53. He's the sheep that is going to be led to the slaughter. We've all gone astray, but the Lord is going to put on him. He's like us. He's a sheep. He's fully man but fully God, and he's going to identify with us to bear our sins. That's why John said, when he saw Jesus coming, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, identifying him as the suffering servant. 
So we see that Jesus in perfect righteousness, unlike any man before, even Adam himself, who is not stained with original sin, even Adam failed. The second Adam will do it righteously. So he fulfills all the righteousness that God requires. But then look what else happens. Because now he's anointed by the Spirit. Look with me at 16. In 16 he says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. This is huge. This is a stunning event. Very few times in the Scriptures are the heavens opened. When they are opened, it's usually for some divine reality to bust into our space and time. And it's usually to bring either the judgment of God against the sin of man or to bring the grace of God. Here you see it as the grace of God. In fact, in Mark's Gospel, the Greek word chosen is the heavens were torn apart. God, men don't tear the heavens apart. God tore the heaven apart and brought forth the Spirit of God. And it descended upon him like a dove. So what's the imagery to the dove for? Well, that's a huge question. Why a dove? Well, of course, because the Bible is kind of a one redemptive story, we want to look back and find out this idea of a dove. You know, you think about the Spirit of God. So at this baptism, you have God the Father who will be speaking. You have God the Son who's being baptized. You have God the Spirit descending. You know, the triune God was together at creation. There was God, His Word was creating, and His Spirit was hovering over the chaos and brought order. Here you see the triune God again at the baptism. What's the point? Well, just as they were creating all of life then, so now are they recreating life. In other words, this Jesus will bring about a new creation, a renewal of all things. All things will be made new through him. He now has the Spirit of God to bring about the changing of all things. Don't you see that in Noah? What was the bird that rested in the new creation? Was it not the dove? Not only that, but this is really a picture of Jesus as the second Moses. You know, in, in the Old Testament, the Jewish writings about the Exodus, when Moses led the people through the Red Sea, and he led them from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the new land, kind of like an Eden of sorts. You know, they, they speak about the dove being over the people as they went through the waters of judgment. Jesus is going through the waters. A dove comes down. He's the second Moses. He's leading a new exodus. He's leading us into this new land. He's leading us into a new kingdom. This is all contained in this idea of the spirit that sends upon him like a dove. This is a, can you imagine being there? I mean, but not just that. It doesn't stop. Now a voice comes from heaven. Look at 17 with me. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. So here you have now, we're not told who the voice is. We know it's God because he's confirming that Christ is his Son. He's not just confirming the identity of Jesus. He's delighting in him, in whom I am well pleased. I I mean, God himself You know, God rebuked his children of Israel when they failed. But here, Jesus doesn't hear rebuke. He hears the applause of heaven. Because Jesus Christ is going to accomplish justice for all the nations. This wasn't a plan hatched at the end of the time of Israel. Hey, we've got to do a new plan. It's not working. Get together and figure it all out. This was from the beginning. Isaiah speaks about it in chapter 42. Listen to these words. 
God speaking, behold, my servant. So God is pointing out, behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. They were looking for that servant to come. The servant would be chosen by God. The servant would be delighted in by God. The, spirit, the servant would have the spirit, and the servant would bring forth justice. That is what is being communicated at this baptism. This is, no, this is such a unique event. The Son coming forward in obedience. The Spirit descending upon him, equipping him to bring forth a new creation that will be to the delight of God because he will carry it out to perfection. Is that incredible? What do we do with this? It's unique. I mean, at a minimum, we stand and we just worship. I didn't know all that was there. Just five verses. And yet you feel like, wow, my mind's just been exploded with the unity of the Old and the New Testament together, all affirming Christ is the one that's going to make all things new. He's the one that we follow. We could just stop right now and just worship. But I want to draw your minds to what we're about to do, because you know what? The Christian who follows goes through the same water, so it has to have some application to us. We have to understand it. We may not be the Christ, the Messiah, but we go through the same waters in baptism. So let me just draw out a couple considerations for you, reminding you about the nature of baptism that you're going to watch. And perhaps some of you need to be baptized uh, to walk in the same manner. But let me give you a few things. First, uh, baptism is a display of our union with Christ. It's a display of our union. Uh, Please don't undervalue baptism. A lot of people say, you know what? It's not salvific. It, it doesn't actually save you, because you have the thief on the cross. He wasn't baptized, and he was saved. And we kind of devalue it, because it doesn't have some mystical or magical powers in the water. So we say, yeah, I haven't been baptized. We treat it. No, 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 don't, please don't do that. Uh, because by, by the baptismal candidate going down into the water, the hesitation for the moment, and then being brought out. You're picturing what Christ has done for you. He represented you. He identified with you by being baptized. You are now identifying with him by being baptized. It's the other side of the coin. That's what Romans chapter 6 is all about, that we're identifying with him. That's why we go down into the water. We want to identify with him. Uh, but secondly, a baptism is a, it's an act of humility. People that are being baptized are proclaiming to you, because baptism is just making faith visible. Um, they're proclaiming to you they can't save themselves. Uh, they need someone to come, represent them, and completely save them. We can't do it. You, you know, when you're accused of something, when someone points out that you've done something wrong, what do we tend to do? We tend to excuse ourselves. We tend to make, well, I had a bad day, or I wasn't feeling good that day. Or, or we make some other justification for what we've done. To just notice when someone points something out to you, what do you do? And yet here, when they go down, they're saying, we, I can do nothing to save myself. I, I can't do anything to make myself right with God. It, it's an absolute act of declaring our full humility. This is really the Bible's version of an altar call. We don't give altar calls here. Altar calls can tend to be moved by emotionalism and decisionism. 
That's the altar call. That, you know, when they go down and they declare to you, listen, I want to follow Christ. I'm a sinner. I need his saving work. I'm even going to show it to you and prove it to you by getting dunked and coming back out again. This is the Bible's version of an altar call. Now, I call you to faith every week, both the believer to sanctifying faith, and I speak to the non-Christian here calling them to faith, but that's the altar call. That's the visual altar call. Yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to come, I'm going to show you. This is what we're committing ourselves to. Okay, third, baptism is about living a new life by the power of the Spirit. Jesus, the Spirit, descended upon him, equipping him to do the work that he's been called to do. So when we go in the water, we're going down into death, identifying that we need his death to be our death. We need his crucifixion to be burying our judgment. And then we're brought forth up to life, it's like being raised from the dead. They're going to come out of the tank and they're going to come like alive. The Spirit of God, not just confirming that they're children of God, but empowering them. The heart of stone is taken out. The heart of flesh put in. It's the beginning of life in the Spirit. Listen, a graduation is not some personal graduation ceremony. Hey, you finally heard all the things about the gospel. You finally came to faith in Christ. Let's celebrate you've arrived. No, no, no. Baptist, you've just started. You're now a child of God. You're now filled with the Spirit. You're now called to walk in the power of the Spirit for the glory of God. It's the beginning of life, but a new life. No longer for yourself, but seeking to be filled by God's Spirit so that we might live. Fourth, baptism is an invitation to suffer. I hope you realize that. Jesus equates his own suffering with baptism. In Mark chapter 10, he says, Jesus said to them, James and John, you don't know what you're asking. They wanted to sit at the right and the left. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He speaks about his own crucifixion as a baptism of sorts. Now, we, those who follow him in the waters, are to carry out his missions. He says, greater things you will do. Greater things. So we're carrying out his mission. We're now living in a world in opposition to God, and we are living for God. Our values and our standards are now God's, and so we're going to face opposition and conflict with the world that is opposed to God. So baptism is a preparation for that. This is what you have before you. May our suffering not be for our foolishness, May our suffering not be because of our sin. The suffering is associated with our obedience to the gospel, not even personal liberties. It's our association with Christ and the gospel. And he prepares us for that by baptism. Okay, fifth, baptism is an act of the church. No one just decides to be baptized in and of themselves. Nobody baptizes themselves. This is kind of an act of the church. The church, you know, you think about it. It's the church that is to be the objective witness to say, we see God's saving work in you. We rejoice in what God is doing in you. Only the church does this. The church is coming alongside. University doesn't baptize. BSF doesn't baptize. Campus Crusade doesn't baptize. It's just the church that does it your brothers and sisters, who are saying, yes, we see the Spirit of God in you. This is why we don't do spontaneous baptisms. We don't just all of a sudden say, who wants to get baptized today? We want to confirm with you that you understand what repentance and faith means. 
We don't want to cause you to be confused or to be falsely assured. This is why we don't perform private baptisms or baptism just with my family and friends. Why? Because it's a, baptism is a public declaration to the community of faith. I'm going to walk after Jesus. I need you to help me do that so that we walk together now. We, we say, hey, we're all on the same pilgrimage. All of us are walking towards, all of us are walking towards our own death. I mean, if the Lord tarries, everyone will go the same way. Well, we've got to go together and help one another. This is the beauty of the church. And then last, I would say that baptism is really entering a unique community, diverse and united. So think about this. Baptism is a way, brings us into the church, and the church is to be, we are image bearers of God. We're to image the triune God by our diversity and our unity. We are different. Let us not flatten out the differences that we have. Let's just be one in them. So C.S. Lewis writes about the Trinity and he says these words, he says, Within the Trinity, there is mutual, self-giving love. This is the essence of their relationship. They, now, this is important. They do not have life orbit around themselves, but around the other. The triune God, their lives are to orbit around the other. Mutually love, self-giving. That's what the church is to be. That my life isn't to be about orbiting around me. It's around you. It's loving you, serving you, caring for you, forgiving you, sacrificing for you, and you for me, and you for one another, that our lives are orbiting around the other. And this is what displays the wisdom of God to the world, because there is no human organization that does that. There's none that are self-giving like that. We do that by the power of the Spirit. And that's what baptism brings us into, a new community, diverse and yet one, different and yet going in the same direction with the same love. So this is an incredible experience, these baptisms. This is, they, they, yeah, they teach us incredible truths about the faith. Now, if you're going to be coming back and uh, you're not a Christian, you're not getting baptized, I, I do want you... Of course, we want you all to come back after the second service because what we're going to do down there and what you're going to see in just a moment as you hear these testimonies, uh, you're going to see it's almost like a wedding ceremony in some respects. You know, you're going into the water as an individual, not associated with God in Christ, but then you go into a death of that self and you come out now aligning yourself, committing your allegiance that you are now wed to Christ, that you are now in union, like a husband and wife, in union with Christ, beginning a new life. Now, if, if you're not a Christian, I would just ask you to watch it and, and ask yourself, where am I with God? You know, how, how do I find my own reconciliation with God? How do I feel about Christ? Do I think I'm united to him? If so, has it been evidenced by baptism? 